The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. As long as we are trying to preserve a, a global internet with a capital I, I think we need to negotiate with all and then of course with any topic that is being discussed at the level of the UN you also need other formats to actually support that so you have discussions in regional fora bilateral meetings smaller group meetings and it all adds up to hopefully achieving something at the UN level I am Eugenia Dohtri Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 24, 2023. This week, the UN Ad Hoc Committee tasked with elaborating a cybercrime convention is meeting in New York. Delegates will be involved in in-depth negotiations of the draft convention ahead of the concluding session in January 2024. The Cybercrime Convention is only one of many initiatives in the growing field of cyber diplomacy. Looming over this work is a big question. Is there enough common ground to pave the path for consensus? To talk about the evolution in the field of cyber diplomacy, I sat down with Ambassador Natalie Jarsma, the Netherlands Ambassador at Large for Security Policy and Cyber. We discussed the tensions plaguing the cyber negotiations in the UN, how diplomacy can help ensure accountability for malicious state behavior in cyberspace, and how to think about progress in the field. It's the Lawfare podcast for August 24, Unpacking Cyber Diplomacy with Ambassador Natalie Jarsma. So our topic for today is the evolving trends in cyber diplomacy. So to get us started, Ambassador, could you begin by maybe defining the scope of this field of diplomacy? Maybe give us a sense of when and how did it evolve and what does it hope to achieve? Yes, certainly. Thank you, uh, Eugenia. And please call me Natalie. Well, cyber diplomacy, I mean, it's diplomacy. And so in a way, it's similar to any other type of diplomacy, but then it's about the cyber world. And diplomacy, of course, is about the relationships between states. And um, it's usually about uh, making sure that one's interests are being served in terms of prosperity, security, and well-being of people. Um, so cyber diplomacy is exactly this. 
for the cyber domain. So we have identified sort of the, the, the big goal as an open, free, safe, secure, and interoperable internet. So as the Netherlands, we uh, attach great importance to an international rules-based order and also to solidarity. So what we like to achieve is that um, states are actually behaving according to the international rules that we have agreed to. And we do have a very clear set of, uh, of rules, but we also need to make sure that all states are actually capable of following those, uh, those rules. Uh, and that's the solidarity element. And what I like with this area of cyber, it's of course, like normally I, I always say we are multilateralists as the Netherlands, whereas uh, cyber is so much an area where other stakeholders have a stake. Uh, I mean, the majority of the infrastructure is being owned by uh, by other uh, stakeholders than um, than the state. And so, in this case, multilateralism is not good enough. It's about multi-stakeholderism. Uh, so it's really the teamwork. Yeah, and how do we try to achieve this then? It's uh, basically through normal uh, diplomatic channels. You have been the Netherlands ambassador at large for security policy and cyber since 2020. How did you get into this space? I actually started my career a little bit different than most diplomats, I guess. I joined the uh, ICT industry right after I graduated. So I worked in on ICTs for about uh, nine years or so. And then I moved to um, the Foreign Service. So I became diplomat in 2001. And I've worked on economic affairs and then later on on security affairs. And so a big part of my career in foreign affairs uh, has been on security. So when our secretary general asked me whether I wanted to do this job, I was really keen to uh, to do it. Also realizing while I worked in the security field that governments cannot um, achieve a lot of the goals uh, alone. So I actually liked this area of multi-stakeholders. And I'm not the first um, cyber ambassador. We actually started with a former, um, former minister. And that was when we... Um, organized a big conference in uh, 2015 on the stability of, uh, of cyber. And then my successor started in 2018 and I started in uh, 2020. And uh, what I also like is, of course, a, a cyber ambassador, you don't do the work alone. I mean, you really need a good team. So what we see that we have a, a lot of cyber diplomats in, uh, in our system and it's... Uh, it's not only in The Hague, but we have cyber diplomats uh, in the bigger cities where we have um, a UN presence or other international organizations. And we have just made a decision to increase our presence around the world. So more and more bilateral embassies also nowadays have a, uh, a cyber diplomat. So this increase in interest in the field of cyber diplomacy and with more diplomats going in and a much larger presence in, in different parts of, of the world, basically. You know, how has the conversation around cyber diplomacy issues evolved since, at least since you took the role? 
Yeah. I think we still have a lot of continuity in a way that we still talk about uh, responsible state behavior, about norms, accountability, but then all, and like cyber response, cyber capacity building, very important. I mean, we started the global forum on cyber expertise as the Netherlands, but also with other uh, uh, countries and other stakeholders, which is really the only global working neutral uh, cyber capacity um, building organization that brings demand and um, and what's on offer together, sort of this matchmaking. And But apart from this sort of continuity of priorities, we see a couple of developments that I think have um, made other issues also important or more important, whatever you prefer. Um, of course, we see the threat landscape that is only becoming uh, more challenging. We see geopolitical tensions and uh, most clearly the war in, uh, in Ukraine. And then we see technological developments. And just on the first, like the threat landscape, for example, there we see that uh, in some cases, the ransomware threat uh, has increased to a level that it actually reaches uh, national security concerns. So it is becoming much more part of the sort of diplomatic conversations. Then the geopolitical tensions, like the war in uh, in Ukraine, it is very much part of our conversation. And it's, of course, I mean, we have seen unprecedented levels of assistance that have been given by the uh, private sector. So the question is really like, can we repeat this in some way or the other in other situations? Or is this such a unique situation that you can't, that you can't do that? Or what sort of lessons learned can we take on board for perhaps other situations? So that's, and we're very keen to take that conversation with the private sector forward. Also related to the war in Ukraine, I mean, within the, um, the framework of the UN and responsible state behavior. We have discussed uh, international humanitarian law quite intensely and like there, it was really difficult to reach consensus on it, but it's no longer a theoretical discussion. I mean, we see that, uh, that IHL and cyber are actually now a real issue in, in this awful war. And then domestically also, the war has created a lot of thinking about how do we better integrate our cyber policies in our broader foreign policy. For example, when we deliver assistance to uh, to Ukraine, um, but also the way we um, hold other states accountable. Uh, so that is also uh, really an, an, um, an ongoing discussion. Then I also mentioned another development, and that is the technological developments. And there, I think artificial intelligence is, of course, the um, uh, the big issue at the moment. AI was already on our agenda, but ChatGPT has um, uh, certainly made our society at large more aware of uh, of the issues, at least around these uh, large language models. And so as the Netherlands, we um, organized last year a conference, re and that was about 
the use of AI in the military domain. And then it's not, it wasn't only about like the killer robots. We've had those discussions and, and negotiations uh, for some time already, but uh, more broadly, like what does it mean in the military when it's about like decision support systems, logistics, etc. So the, the, the broad spectrum. And the year before, we actually did a conference, a much smaller conference about AI in the uh, justice and security domain, very much focused on uh, on the Netherlands uh, also, because we realized that like we've had some issues with um, normal algorithms and that created a lot of um, issues in the Netherlands. It was actually a case around uh, welfare payments this algorithm turned out to be uh, discriminating. And so based on that, we're doing a lot on algorithms. But of course, in an era of AI, this is becoming increasingly uh, a concern. And like in the debate, I think as a cyber ambassador, I see that uh, we very much focus on sort of the human-centric approaches around uh, AI and making sure that um, democratic value, values and human rights are uh, are being respected. Well, at the same time, everybody realizes that AI is uh, bringing a, a lot of good and is going to bring a lot of good. And But also when you start to think about it, then it's also critical that it's not only a limited number of countries, organizations that do have the capabilities to use AI for a particular purpose, uh, because that could mean that the differences in the world would only become bigger. So from a broader foreign policy perspective, that would be really a big, a big issue. So that is, I think, also why the UN Secretary General takes this issue very seriously. The Netherlands recently put out a international strategy for for cyber. Could you maybe tell us how are these different issues that you're highlighting treated in that strategy? How is it a part of the way that you're thinking about this for now and and into the future? Yeah, we still we had our previous strategy was from 2018, so it was really time to uh, to update this and. Again, sort of these these uh, developments were indeed translated into this strategy. What is much more like in our previous strategy, we already focused on norm development and like um, having a normative framework for responsible state behavior means that you have a great yardstick to measure good and, and bad behavior against. And then issues around accountability, how to hold malicious behavior to account, how to address this with other states. And this is still in our strategy. But in terms of sort of the diplomatic response to cyber attacks, we are much more looking at it in an integrated and proactive way. And we will have those discussions also in our interagency and also, of course, with the EU, how one can use sort of a broader set of tools to actually make sure that other countries are uh, behaving uh, according to the normative framework. And 
Other area that is getting more emphasis in our strategy is really the human rights angle, I would say. It's, I mean, we have always been very much concerned with the sort of the, the digital space and, and uh, human rights that are being respected. Um, you and I saw each other at the RightsCon. I mean, this is typical uh, a place where, of course, you can have these uh, these discussions. And we we noticed that the digital space, the the the, the freedom is actually only shrinking. So it's it's really really challenging. So we will we have more human rights emphasis in the um, in the strategy. What we've also included is internet governance because what we see is that uh, there are states that are looking at the way the internet governance is now uh, organized in a multi-stakeholder way, right? And they look at it like, huh, that's strange. It should be states that should be in control. Well, that is completely against how we look at this. We, we very much are in favor of the multi-stakeholder model. But that having said, I mean, not all countries were already online when we developed this multi-stakeholder model. So that means that the current models should be open for newcomers, and I believe they are. And this is a growth uh, process. And so, yeah, that's also part of uh, part of the strategy. I, I definitely want us to talk more about the details of many of these issues. Uh, you brought up accountability, human rights, um, how to measure activity. But, but before we get into that, I want to stay a little bit longer on maybe the practice of cyber diplomacy, of, of who is involved and where these conversations are taking place, who is invited, and, and to kind of give our audience a sense of the many, many forums that deal with cyber diplomacy. And, and you've already been hinting at this with your mentions of multi-stakeholderism. Could you give us maybe a rundown of what are the different initiatives? Because we have the UN work, we have academic-led initiatives, we have industry-led projects, and and all of these are happening simultaneously and probably with a very similar cast of characters. So so if you maybe could give us a sense of where you're engaging as you know, the top cyber diplomat and what are the different stakeholders that are involved in those conversations? Yeah, sure. And indeed, it is a lot. And one cannot be everywhere. And sometimes I feel that uh, that we are being expected to be everywhere at the same place at the same time. I don't think I can give sort of a complete overview, but perhaps sort of give a couple of examples. We work along sort of the lines of this this goal of an open, free, um, secure internet. So when we say openness, it's about accessibility, interoperability. So clearly here it is. ICANN, that is very important. ICANN, by the way, is usually done by our colleagues from uh, the Ministry of uh, Economic Affairs. Then the free internet, it's about online freedom, online rights. I just mentioned the RightsCon, but I'm sure there, there are many more gatherings, but the RightsCon, I, I tend to be there 
every year. I mean, the last last time it was uh, in person. Before that, it was online. Then also on a free internet, we have the Freedom Online Coalition. And we were one of the um, founding members of the Freedom Online uh, Coalition. And currently the U.S. is chairing the Freedom Online Coalition. But because we find the current era really, really challenging for human rights online, and we see that this space is only shrinking, we decided that... Um, uh, we wanted to uh, to chair the Freedom Online Coalition again. So I'm really happy to announce that next year we are going to chair the Freedom Online Coalition. And, uh, and we also believe that it is um, really a crucial time given certain other developments. And for example, the Global Digital Compact, uh, just to name another forum where, um, where negotiations will, uh, will start later. Then... On the rundown of an open, free, and secure internet, security is, I think, even more evolved, and I pay a lot of attention to the security angle. We have the open-ended working group. Then we have a lot of the conferences where you can also meet other um, organizations, and especially the private sector. For example, the RSA, there's the... Um, uh, the Singapore Cyber Week that is uh, taking place in October. We have our own conference in The Hague, the One Conference, where a lot of the national certs also uh, gather. And then, of course, a lot of the bilateral and regional dialogues. What I really like is that we have uh, we do this regional dialogue together with uh, ORF America, and I've participated, for example, in a dialogue in the Western Balkans and in Southern Africa, where we bring different stakeholders together and we go over the different challenges. And then you see that certain actors, for example, from the private sector, are then educating people from government or vice versa. And it's just fantastic. And then it's it's really done in a regional way, um, in a multi-stakeholder way. And yeah, that, that that's also diplomacy. Could you could you give us a, a sense because you did mention that this is a space that is shrinking. So if you could maybe give us a sense of, you know, how do you see that space shrinking, and also what the role of the Freedom Online Coalition for maybe our audience members who might not be fully familiar with it, how the Freedom Online Coalition can change things? Yeah, certainly. Indeed, we see the uh, the online world. Um, the freedom shrinking. And um, I mean, the Freedom Online Coalition was established already uh, years ago when we still were hoping for this really sort of free space online. And we see, of course, a lot of developments that are going uh, in the wrong direction. So you see that certain states uh, want to have more control without respecting so much the uh, the human rights online. Sometimes it is based on legitimate concerns, but then, um, of course, the solutions that are being are being found are then not in um, in line with um, sort of the the basic basic rights. Um, what we see currently is that in the UN. There is a discussion around the uh, Global Digital Compact, 
and it's going to be a, as I understand it, a sort of a document where the whole world is going to commit to sort of how our digital future should look like. And then, of course, there is a, a big risk that more authoritarian tendencies could be reflected in that document. So the Freedom Online Coalition brings together nations and including, again, the multi-stakeholders of those nations that are very clear about uh, about uh, these fundamental uh, freedoms and rights and are going to um, give input to this global digital compact. Then there are other developments, for example, the... Um, on the, uh, the future of the IGF, the Internet Governance Forum, that is uh, being discussed. And we very much appreciate the IGF because we think it is a uh, fantastic format where stakeholders come together and speak freely. And of course, one could say, well, they don't take decisions. No, that was not the purpose of the uh, of the IGF, but it is the, the community that can actually give really good advice on how the future of the of our online world should look like. And again, there is a, um, a big group of human rights defenders and also, of course, the technical community is there, but also the human rights defenders that are uh, advocating for uh, for these protecting our freedom uh, freedoms online. So, in other words, these developments around the global digital compact, discussions about the the future of the Internet Governance Forum, it relates to freedoms freedoms online but also on internet governance and that is how we um, how we look at it and also we believe that the freedom online coalition can together deliver a lot of um, of good advice and good input to these processes life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed 
my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned, kind of the, the tendencies and tensions in the UN. And in the UN, one of the most headline-grabbing, as much as cyber diplomacy issues grab headlines, is the work at the now second UN open-ended working group on the security of and in the use of information and communications technologies, or the OEWG. 
So very recently, a few weeks ago, the chair of the UNOEWG submitted the final draft of the second annual progress report. And in this letter to the Secretary General, he mentions that, and I'm quoting here, the document represents a fragile balance of diverse views and priorities and competing positions. So you participated in the session, correct? That's correct. So what can you tell us about the way that the negotiations are going and why this document is in a fragile balance? And and maybe just if you could start by providing a bit of background on the OEWG and its role as a negotiation venue for anyone in our audience who might not be fully familiar with it. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. Yeah, let me start there. The UN has... Um, discussed cyber for some time now. And we first had a a smaller group of nations and the uh, composition of those groups changed over the time, Um, but usually about 20, 25 uh, countries. And those groups were called the group of governmental experts. And there was continuity in participation because the P5 are always part of that. The last GGE, and now I'm trying to sort of remember all the years correct, but I think it was 2021 uh, when it was finished. And the last open-ended working group, and I believe that was 2020, both reached consensus on a final document. I said like the GGE was a a smaller group of, uh, of countries, and then... There was a new initiative started by the Russians, and that is called the Open-Ended Working Group. And basically, open-ended means that all nations are uh, are welcome to um, to give input. And so we very much appreciate that openness of that uh, of that working group. The way that mandate was being uh, described, we didn't really like, but in the end, we participated in the former uh, in the previous open-ended working group really actively. And what it does is it sets out a framework for responsible state behavior. And so, first of all, it stipulates that international law applies to cyberspace. And then there are 11 norms, and those are non-binding norms, but still states have committed themselves to be guided by them in their behavior. And in addition to international law and norms, These uh, reports also include other chapters, and those are also part of the ACI. So there's a threat section. There is a section about confidence building measures. There is a section about capacity building. So, for example, we have agreed to certain principles on which capacity building can be delivered. And then there's a section about the regular institutional dialogue. In other words, how are we going to address cyber in a more permanent way in the UN? Because the open-ended working group is still a temporary working group. So now back to this open-ended working group. I think it's still still a positive note. It's still great that we were able to achieve consensus on this annual progress report because that was at stake uh, last time. We also very much appreciate the open-ended working group being a platform for dialogue. So it is 
sort of a confidence building measure in itself in the room where all states can participate. But also, of course, you can have meetings in the margins in smaller groupings or bilateral. So states that you normally don't see so often. So it is really a confidence building measure. And then we're also very, very proud of a program that we organized there. And that's the Women in Cyber Fellowship. And basically what uh, we and some other states thought was uh, we wanted to have more states involved in these uh, discussions because we noticed that a lot of states were not aware that these negotiations were actually going on. And whereas we believe that all states deserve a voice around the table. At the same time, this is a first committee process in the UN. So this is about sort of war, peace and stability issues. And usually the women are a bit underrepresented in these kind of fora. So we thought, okay, let's combine two goals. We want to have more states around the table and we want to have uh, more women involved. So based on that, we developed this Women in Cyber um, Fellowship and we, of course, discussed it with, uh, with the nations where these women uh, come from and we provide them with a, um, a great training that is delivered by neutral parties. And uh, what we've seen that in the previous open-ended working group, the number of interventions by women was around 20, 25%, depending a bit on the session. And nowadays we're at par. So it's around 50%. So which is, I think, really great. So this is all sort of all positive news. Another positive element is that more and more countries have expressed or have sort of explained their position on international law and especially how international law applies in cyberspace. And this is really crucial. And that brings me to your question about the fragile balance. Um, because one of the elements is the question around, do we need something extra on international law? And we believe that the process to finding an answer to that question is for states to be clear on how their interpretation of international law is and publishing that or expressing that to other states. And based on that, you could identify a certain delta of issues we need to discuss in more depth. And based on that, we then might conclude that we need something in addition to current international law. Whereas... Russia and some other states also support that idea. They tabled the idea of a new convention around cybersecurity. And this is highly contagious. Uh, there's no consensus around that. And it was already contagious in the previous open-ended working group and, and in the GGEs. So, and the consensus that was reached during those processes was already really this fragile balance. So whenever you start to rock the boat, then of course there's even more sort of issue around sort of the, the balance of uh, in reports. In addition to that, there's more 
uh, that is perhaps a bit contagious. And that is that uh, the Netherlands, as part of a, a broader group, we are very much in favor of not only talking about the normative framework, but implementing it. And France and Egypt together started an initiative that is called the Program of Action. And that is about the implementation of the normative framework. So we're very much in favor of that. The way the discussions, uh, like the, the initiative has been discussed uh, a little bit in the open-ended working group. So, but we would like to see more time reserved to actually have that conversation in the, in the open-ended working group. Again, because then all states can actually participate in this, uh, in this dialogue. And to make sure that we develop a regular institutional dialogue, because this would be a, a permanent mechanism that actually addresses the concerns of all. And obviously, a big part of the program of action would be capacity building, because a lot of countries are not at the level of having, for example, a national surge. Or, uh, so also the expectations about what they can deliver uh, on being a responsible state uh, is also different than the expectations that you could have from like uh, nations that are fully digitalized and even have like an offensive cyber program, for example. We might not be getting a convention on cybersecurity anytime soon, but but where we are seeing some movement is in the ad hoc committee on cybercrime. So the ad hoc committee will be meeting for its sixth session on August 21st, and they have planned their concluding session for late January next year, right? So, so what does this final stretch look like? Is the convention on cybercrime in, in the future? Yeah, thank you. Well, when we started as international community, everybody knew that the timeline was really, really challenging. Colleagues of mine have explained to me that the Budapest Convention, which is a convention that was initially negotiated in the Council of Europe, but also countries outside of Europe are part of that uh, convention, but that took eight years, whereas now I believe we have two years. What the chair has done, and we really like uh, like the approach that she took, is that she uh, reserved a lot of time for sort of initial dialogue and uh, offering the space for countries to present their positions before going into real negotiations. Uh, but now, indeed, we are at a, uh, a point where there is a, a second reading of, uh, of all the articles and a lot of the more contagious articles have been removed. So my understanding is that the chair wants to achieve as much consensus as possible during these uh, coming two weeks and then see how this, that goes and, and continue in the, in the next session. But it, but it would be great if, if we were to have a, a convention, I, I must say. I mean, of course... I mean, we are a member of the Budapest Convention, and uh, but yeah, it would be really great if we were to have a global treaty that all nations can sign, and it would enormously help our uh, law enforcement uh, community, and accountability would be uh, uh, hopefully really a lot better. So in the UN, do you think that there's any common ground that can pave the way to consensus 
you know, especially as we're talking about these tensions in the OEWG and the different approaches to how the negotiations should continue, you know, and, and if there is no common ground, if there is no interest from different states who may understand some of the, the issues differently, if there is no way to move forward, would you think that there is an argument to be made that some of the resources and the efforts that are put into UN negotiations would be better served in maybe smaller forums, you know, maybe working regionally or bilaterally with other countries who are maybe more like-minded or share a baseline understanding of, of where cyberspace should be, should be moving towards? Yeah. Well, I think as to start with your latter question, I think as long as we are trying to preserve a, a global internet with a capital I, I think we need to negotiate with all. And then, of course, with any topic that is being discussed at the level of the UN, you also need other formats to actually support that. So you have discussions in regional fora, bilateral meetings, smaller group meetings, and it all adds up to hopefully achieving something at the UN level. And from our part, um, that's sort of the, the first part of your question about sort of the common ground, we are still hopeful for the ad hoc committee. So, I mean, even though the, the timeline is really, really challenging, I think the, the threat landscape is as such that a lot of countries would like to have a convention. And so, yeah, we're, we're hopeful. I mean, I'm not saying, no, we won't have it. And we will, we will certainly be very active in, uh, on the ad hoc committee. On the open-ended working group, I also see that there is certainly common ground. And the chair has uh, taken a, a pragmatic approach he, uh, when he started, he said, yeah, I want to focus on low-hanging fruit. And one of the uh, items that he has identified as low-hanging fruit is a point of contact directory. And in principle, all countries are in favor of a point of contact directory. And now we will have conversations about, okay, what will this point of contact directory exactly mean? Like who is on that list, on that telephone book, if you will, um, and what do we expect from each other? What are we going to address, address through that point of contact network? And this could be very practical. And I think it also is very much in the interest of countries that are not so much linked to other sort of point of contact groups, regional groups. Uh, for example, in the OSCE, we have a point of contact uh, directory. But yeah, I mean, that doesn't go for uh, for all nations. And then I'm also hopeful on the developments on international law because I see that the number of countries that are giving their interpretation of international law and how it applies to cyber is actually growing. And we do see more sort of in-depth uh, discussions. The chair is now also allocating more time for those discussions. So that is, yeah, I think it's all relatively positive, given that the geopolitical world is so uh, is so challenging. I, I really appreciate your optimism here. 
I would love to keep talking about the UN and the negotiations there, but I did promise earlier that we would get back to some of the principles that we were that we were talking about. So let's let's shift now to to discussing those. And and I wanna talk a little bit about goals and objectives, right? So when you think about the way that your office works, how do you measure the impact that you have? And how do you compare that to the vision of what cyberspace should be? Well, let me start with one observation that is that with international relations, measuring impact is always very difficult. But let me give you a couple of examples because then that is probably better than um, going into sort of the monitoring and evaluation kind of theory. I just gave the example around the uh, women in cyber group. And there we had a clear goal and we can measure it. I mean, the number of interventions is going up. And then, of course, the next goal is that the quality needs to go up. That's more subjective rather than measuring. But there also, it's sort of we gather with the team and we sort of uh, try to have a proper discussion about that. Like, do we see uh, that certain issues are being addressed? The same, for example, when it's about international law. I was just saying that more and more countries are actually expressing their ideas around international law and how it applies to cyber, well, that's also based on observations. So it's it's more sort of observing. Then on diplomatic response, so that is basically when we see a cyber attack on us or on another country, we may decide to react to that in a with diplomatic means. And then, of course, we try to build in certain feedback loops. So, for example, if we call out certain malicious behavior coming from a state or coming from a country and that the state is not necessarily involved, uh, and these statements are very, very precise on this, we ask our embassies to monitor what they see. And there are also researchers that are actually uh, doing research around this. So we try to take that on on board and learn from it. Other countries are also sharing their lessons learned and to see what is the most effective way forward. Because of course, I mean, these diplomatic interventions are not just to do something. It is about... Uh, changing the behavior of another state and in a direction that it it becomes more responsible and in line with what we have agreed in the UN. So yeah, those are sort of the the examples that I could I could give. So you mentioned responsibility and affecting and hoping to change the behavior of those who are malicious or irresponsible. So I want to I want to talk about that in connection to accountability. So what tools are available for you to reinforce the sort of behavior that is seen as responsible and which of those tools have been actually used and how can you tell what success looks like? 
it's normal diplomatic tools, first of all. So regular diplomatic tools. So for example, an official demarche. Um, so you ask for a meeting and you explain your concerns and then you hope that the other country will do something with that. You could call in an ambassador, but then there are also other more political tools like public statements or like sanctions, for example. And within the EU, we have developed this cyber diplomacy toolbox that makes it actually possible that we move together with all uh, EU countries. And there we see that sanctions do have a certain effect. Uh, but of course, you these sanctions are now uh, limited to... Um, to individuals and, uh, and entities. So as an individual, uh, of course, you yeah, it would not be great if your um, financial means are being frozen in the EU. But if you don't go to the EU, you don't have anything or you don't travel to the EU, it doesn't really matter. So we need to really amend that in order to make it more, uh, more effective. And uh, But we do see, for example, with these statements, like as an EU, we do these statements, but preferably we do this in a, a broader coalition. And we do see that certain states do care, but it depends also a bit on um, on what state we are talking about, because sometimes it may be perceived as very patriotic that you have hacked an other country. And then, of course, a statement is having the opposite effect. But apart from this, there's... Also, of course, a way to actually put the victim more central. And I also like that approach because, of course, a victim needs to be helped. So in a very practical way, by sending cybersecurity uh, experts, that, that is a way to do it. But then also um, giving a victim a central place whenever a country actually appreciates that, obviously, in a multilateral setting so that other countries actually realize what is at stake. And then also, of course, the hopefully the malicious actor does feel the pressure that the behavior was actually malicious and not okay. But, I mean, this is all really work in progress, I think, in terms of measuring and seeing impact. Obviously, international law provides for even further steps till sort of kinetic means, uh, I mean, those are even included, but that's, of course, based on a case-by-case uh, assessment and depending on uh, on impact. So before we wrap up, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity, if you wanted to, to, to share your news. Well, yeah, and I've been in this position for three years now, so it is a little bit sad because I do like this area of work really a lot and I do like the community a lot but I'm leaving um, it's the end of my term so it's time for a uh, successor to actually take over so as as you're wrapping up and considering all of these trends that we have been discussing you know what advice do you have for your successor connect the dots and stay focused uh, but then also, most of all, enjoy the ride um, in this roller coaster. And I'm sure that there will be more loopings and uh, it's going to be fun. 
that's that's very encouraging. Um, any last remarks? Any final thoughts that you would like to share with with us before we we conclude? Yeah, it's uh, thank you, Eugenia. Really, cyber is teamwork, and the cyber community always stresses this. But as cyber ambassador, I've really started to appreciate this in much more sort of depth. And what I would really like to see, I mean, we already see that uh, the different stakeholders do work together, like government, uh, the technical community, private sector, NGOs. But I would like to see that the stakeholders are actually going to work or do find a way to work together in a um, in a more uh, impactful way, in a smarter way. So that is what I would really wish for the future and to have more impact. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Eugenia. Thank you. My pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jan Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Jan. As always, thank you for listening. 